welcome to the International Association of Business Communicators Amina Region podcast. This is Monique Zidnik. Communication can be powerful. It can be used for good and evil. And this is why the IABC, our code of ethics, call out disinformation and uphold the positive value that professional business communication brings. Today, my guest is Uta Schaefer, and we're here to talk about disinformation, about communication warfare and weaponization of information. To our global friends and listeners, Uta is highly regarded in Germany and Europe as the head of media and public relations, digital communication for the Deutsche Gesellschaft für International Zusammenarbeit. That's G-I-Z in short. They are the German Federal Agency for International Cooperation and Development. She is also the author of Fake Stat Fact, Fake versus Fact. Previously, she worked for Deutsche Welle, Germany's international broadcaster and news service for over 20 years in a number of roles, including editor-in-chief. Most notably, Uta was the founding editor of the Ukrainian service at the German foreign broadcaster and has completed investigative research into the impact of Russian misinformation policy via European media. Uta is talking to us today from Frankfurt am Main in Germany. Welcome, Uta. Thank you. <laughs> Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been dying to speak to you, particularly over the past couple of weeks with everything that's been happening, but we'll, we'll get to that later. So Uta, just starting with the very, very basics here, what exactly is disinformation and why did you become interested in understanding it? Yeah, disinformation is a very decisive tool in our digital communication period where we are. And I, I think the question is good to be put directly in the beginning. What is disinformation in contrast to misinformation, for example, or or other aspects. This information, in my understanding, is the very targeted dissemination of manipulated news and false reports in the aim to manipulate the recipient groups and target groups or to harm individuals or groups. This information has many different shapes and characters, so it could be a pure invention, but more often it is a very, yeah, it is, it is a combination of facts and invented news or new contexts. And if you use an old image or an old video or a video of the regional context and put it, for example, to the context of the Russian war in Ukraine, then it led to a disinformation and propaganda, of course, and it is misleading in the aim to manipulate opinion building and information in, in, in Western countries, but also among, for example, the Russian-speaking target groups. So, Uta, it's deliberate then. It's deliberate and it's not just a mistake, it's Absolutely. purposely done. That's the most important difference. It is done by intention, by, by, a, by a strategy very often, be it the strategy to put others under, uh, under pressure, because you mm -hmm. simply want them to pay money if you, for example, hack companies. Be it, or, or if you just overflow them by disinformation campaigns, you could put a lot of pressure on companies. Or this is an economic strategy, but um, in this political context, it is also 
manipulation or a disinformation strategy aiming at a very serious target, I think, to disseminate mistrust among people and groups of society, to enhance doubts on the functioning of democratic institutions, parties, elections. And in that sense, disinformation is always um, rising when we are in times of war, we are in times of election, uh, and it's very often combined with, um, for example, conspirational disinformation and actors on the web who are disseminating conspirational theories. But this is, perhaps we could come to that later, uh, my own interest in this issue. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm very curious about, because it's the evil and dark side in terms of what communication can do. Yeah, my first uh, initial point to, I, okay, I'm, I'm curious, I'm a journalist, that's the first point. But before the election campaign in Germany in 2017, two years ago, three years ago, I detected in, in my, let's say, social structure around me, in very normal situations with normal people, uh, in taxis, in buses, in, at, at work, for example, or among neighbors. I detected many narratives I couldn't understand. Um, mm -hmm. And very often they showed me their proofs coming from the web. For example, a video from Turkish alternative media on the web showing a putsch against the government in Berlin, which is very, very similarly, in his script book, very similar to the putsch in, in, in Turkey years ago. Or they, they showed me Russia Today posts and so on. So at that point, I detected that there are many actors who are gaining and or, or who are working on increasing their impact on political and public opinion building in Germany. And um, this was very interesting because I felt that there are echo chambers of migrants groups, for example, only using their Russian-rooted media on the web uh, or Turkish community using the Turkish media. And there is no longer one common public space where we could be in a discourse and uh, discuss things, but that there are separated echo chambers and the one are not interested and not knowing the arguments of the other. And at that point, I told myself, okay, I have to research on that. Who is behind? Who are the actors? What is the digital technical strategy behind? How, how do they work? How do they find each other? And, and how far are they also um, cooperating, putting more pressure in that issue? What There's one point, perhaps, if you allow me. I, I think this disinformation is always playing with the same method. You need an outrage trigger, mm -hmm. an emotional strong narrative, like um, foreigners are overrunning our society, like um, police is no longer able to protect citizens, those just as examples. And then you need a fake proof, an, a picture, uh, a video, sometimes it's perhaps a deep fake. You, you need these proofs. And you need campaigners, so campaigning organs on the web, uh, like hybrid media, some, they are sometimes called alternative media, no, they are not, not really alternative, I think, they declare themselves it. so, or ad campaigns, or bots, or, uh, or troll fabrics. And if you have all these three elements, you could disseminate 
And you could reach an outreach on the web, which is uh, substantial and which could really lead to other election results, for example, as we saw it in 2016 in the US. And as we also, I think, saw it in the 2017 elections in, in Germany. And I do remember some of the placards and things that I saw. I was actually quite surprised to see Because as you said, all of this is happening in different silos and a person who thinks fairly mainstream isn't necessarily aware of the extremist views that are rife because of that separation of of media. Once you get the inkling, say, as you said, talking to, to people who truly believe a certain situation, which is so different from your own, simply because they've had that proof through videos or through websites, or as you said, deep fakes can be quite scary. And yeah, and, and the, the, the simple question at that point for me was, how does it come that extremist phrases or messages are now in the, in the middle or in the center of our political discussion? Who is behind this distribution of very radical uh, messages and narratives who are very often very anti and not mm-hmm. inclusively, but exclusively used. For example, there was one rightist party in Germany, the Alternative for Germany, AfD, who used in their placard and election campaign a few of these strong and emotional narratives, which are, for me, originated in the very radical echo chambers in, in digital communication and on the web, be it on social media are distributed by by different actors. I think as well, scandals such as the Cambridge Analytica also opened my eyes personally to to what was going on because it shone a light on the power that data can also bring to these marketing campaigns, these disinformation campaigns, these manipulative campaigns. For example, in the film, the hack, ex-Cambridge Analytica employee Brittany Kaiser shares a grassroots style campaign that they created trying to get young people not to vote in a particular country. And that was, as you said, for, for that manipulation for political gain. Did you have any any thoughts on the influence of data there on the effectiveness of misinformation? And do you think perhaps this is the reason why it's become a bit more rife now? Or, or do you think it was always there? Yeah, there are technical arguments of why this disinformation dissemination is so um, successful. And it's so easy and so successful in marketing, as you uh, mentioned and, and it is especially working election campaigns where the difference between the two parties isn't so so intense so uh, if, if, if it is narrow if the game is narrow and the competition is narrow it is easier to or it is more efficient to use this uh, technology and an interesting point is in that election campaign in the US where Cambridge Analytica was also involved in one third of the young voters between 19 and 30 or something, they, they got the information on election and policy only via social media, exclusively via social media. And especially when the situation is like that, and you could really manipulate target groups uh, and the younger ones by using this strategy, which is coming from, from marketing. Yes, you connect customer data on consumption, on lifestyle, on, on your family life, with the children you have, for example. 
and uh, you could then anticipate what will this person buy next. This is how marketing is using it every day when we get our ads, but clearly see mm -hmm. that they are combining this, this data. Cambridge Analytica team that time combined user data with personality profiles and provided voters with messages that fit them, very often also counter narratives against political enemies. And this micro-targeting is, in my understanding, a tailored advertising to smaller groups and individuals. It was the son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, who built up in that period a database of 220 million contacts. And this is, a, is an amount if you want to manipulate or, or dominate a political competition. These contacts that time were brought together with scientific psychometric methods with which personality profiles and target groups can be precisely differentiated on the web. Yeah, it was very efficient, as we uh, saw then with the result. And Brittany Kaiser even mentioned in it that it was really a, you know, a high-grade weapon of sorts because it could cause so much destruction. Speaking of destruction, if we turn our attention to what we're seeing globally at the moment with disinformation, with the Russian and Ukrainian war, how, how do you see that sort of relate? Is it an extension of what you saw back a couple of years ago when you first became interested in it or has it evolved? What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. And I just reflected from where I start, but um, first we have in the first sentence say that war times like election times and any competition among political parties is always a time and a period when disinformation and propaganda is used, intensively used, because it is a very sensitive and competitive time. And of course, both sides, that is something which is for me very important, both sides are using propaganda these days. Yeah, We see mm -hmm. fake videos from the Ukrainian side, we see it from Russia. The difference is that Russia already since more than a decade was intensively building up an infrastructure of disinformation, which was based, for example, on the state broadcasters Russia Today and Sputnik, who are today prohibited to rebroadcast anymore in Europe due to the to the war of Russia in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, before they have been intensively shared on the web by very very different actors, and they are really they have been the fuel in this dissemination of uh, disinformation. What is important is that the Ukraine war is, in my understanding, the military continuation of a hybrid war of mm -hmm. aggression waged by Russia against democracy, human rights, international law, liberal values. We always have this sentence, the Ukrainians are fighting the battle not only for Ukraine, but also for, for Europe. And in that sense, I understand that the aim of this hybrid war is more than only a, a territory. There's not only a territory aspect, there is the aspect to really destroy the democratic systems, not only in Ukraine or in the neighborhood, but also in Europe or, or in the US, simply in, in the West. Before the current attack to Ukraine, in the run-up to the 2014 invasion of Crimea region, 
Russia had already mined, weaponized and declared the digital information space as, as a war zone, in a sense. Mm -hmm. It was, a, for me, a preparatory information strategy that used digital information and disinformation as a weapon of war, aiming at creating echo chambers who are echoing this this idea of a very autocratic state. Yeah. And I've heard that described as sort of the aim as being to make a country self-implode, setting the own people against each other, causing exactly. mayhem. Polarizing, yeah, polarizing societies around. That's a military technique they use, but it's also a very, um, it's a communication technique they use since a long time. And I think too long we have been observers of these methods and um, mm -hmm. we should really think about what is to be anticipated. Not only what is the right reaction, but what should we anticipate. And the interesting thing is that there are a few researches on that the fact that the Russian war in Ukraine is now distributed and the disinformation especially is distributed by the conspirational and far-rightist echo chambers on the web. So this war is in a certain understanding, only a new issue before, for example, there was a dissemination of disinformation on Corona, on uh, the actors behind, on the mistrust, on legal measures against or to protect people. Okay. And we have a certain scene, for example, which is called the queer, queer denker scene, uh, people yeah. uh, who are sharing conspirational stories, I would say, and they, for example, distribute now very intensively on WhatsApp and on different social media platforms Russian disinformation. And this is something you could, you could measure. Uh, there are several NGOs in Germany who are extending this um, trend, and you could see that we have a majority of very pro-Russian narratives. Uh, one is, for example, that uh, Russia is combating national socialist government in Ukraine. What is the argument of um, Russian President Putin? But what is not a fact? Uh, so this disinformation was, is intensively shared. And you're absolutely right. It's not just in terms of specific political topics. It's across the board with a whole range of topics that we've seen over the past couple of years from trying to divide and conquer people on things such as race, gender, a whole range of things, which is worrying because it's not then only politically driven and politically focused and specifically wartime focused. It can be a bit more insidious, I think, and harder to detect, I guess, in a way, because the topics aren't so clearly linked to warfare, but the outcome, the outcome is. Yeah, and sometimes they are trying to transfer it to German, to, to Germany, for example, in these days, we have a very we have several viral videos on Facebook and on other social media platforms where you see Russian migrants. They are speaking in German but with an accent, telling the story that they have been attacked by Ukrainians in Germany. So this is simply simply playing with very individual fear and mm -hmm. um, very individual doubt. So what we mentioned before, they are trying to polarize our society and divide migrant groups from so-called mainstream society or separate mainstream from alternative uh, society and they are trying very efficiently to destroy the idea of having an inclusive 
society able to dispute and to accept and shape democratic procedures. And this is very interesting, but I, but I think it is working and it will, uh, it, it will go on. So it is not depending, not for me, it is not depending on this war, but after the war there will be other issues and we should really ask ourselves what is the right way to deal with that. But before we get on to solutions and what we should be thinking of and what we can do as individuals, I'd love to just go back to to the current situation and reflect on sort of what the difference is now compared to back in, say, 2014 when, when there was also a Russian-Ukrainian conflict. And I read a fascinating article in The Guardian a few weeks back that cited the increase in smartphones and the internet use in the Ukrainian community as an information turning point. For example, in 2014, 14% of Ukrainians had smartphones and by 2020, it rose up to more than 70%. And also with high-speed internet allowing for quicker sharing of real-time footage and stories to the world. What are your thoughts here? Like what role is technology playing now and social media now compared to sort of where it was back if we look at the propaganda from, say, Lenny Riefenstahl's Nazi propaganda era and those films that she was making that was disinformation? Yeah, I could not answer it based on a scientific approach. I have a very individual perspective on perhaps my impressions on, on that. I think if you get more frequently more news from one echo chamber, mm-hmm. it, it means a massive wave of information, be it true or false. We invited a woman from Ukraine, a communicator, and <laughs> her, her two sons. They are twins. And, and they, I learned with them German they are 13, they are nearly 14 years old. And these boys are getting via social media the news from Ukraine now. Yes, and I, I know Russians living in Germany, German, but Russian, um, with Russian roots, and they are, let's say, consuming or receiving the Russian-oriented information. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think this could really put us at stake on schoolyards and in our society here, yeah. Um, because and, yeah. and yes, they they get the news via social media. They are not waiting for the television news to um, to recheck that. So yeah, they are getting it in a one by one communication or mass to mass communication. And they mm-hmm. they uh, I, I don't see that they are checking or verifying if these pictures are right, if it is the full information. And yeah, um, I, I think the fact that we have our mobiles with us and that we are looking several times per hour on the display and that the social media are push-up mails, uh, so I could mm-hmm. send messages I could send immediately when I look on the mobile. I think that makes something. There have been, I started my career at Deutsche Welle as being the German foreign broadcaster, the small sister of BBC, uh, decades ago. And at that time, it has been official media who are distributing information. We, we had a few organs, the ones or professional bodies, who are distributing information. And uh, now we have billions, I would say. This is a clear 
fuel and a clear engine of dissemination. Sometimes I ask myself, would I be able as an individual to compete with this amount of disinformation and information? And I think there are limits. Yeah. What I'm hearing from you is that there's no central source of truth anymore. There used to be more of a limited fact-checked media truth. I'm also hearing from you that it's the frequency and the ability to share quickly. Maybe even the fact that we're so used to working at a fast pace, as you said, checking your phone many times a day, that there isn't really time or people don't take the time to check on the facts. What do you think are some of the things that we can do as individuals? And if you want to talk also at the bigger picture, if you've got thoughts on the bigger picture of society, some of the things that we could do, not only protect ourselves, but also as a society, put some checks and balances in place? Or do you think that that's things are too far gone? Yeah, you... you <laughs> Uh, that shouldn't hinder you to do the right checks and balances. And I think, for example, it's to, uh, to, to stop the broadcasting of Russia Today and Sputnik. Um, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it was urgent, Yeah, I would say. Nevertheless, I'd like to start and to invest more in um, digital media capacities. And this must start directly from school or preschool, yeah? because our youth is, is using information of course it's using digital devices when even when they are three so um, I think you, you must really start very early when I see my grandchildren playing with a mobile and doing a video I, I say okay um, you must start very early but, but you mean by digital media capacity in terms of teaching at that very junior level best practice of using it or, or? If you speak about um, school age, I really think um, that should be the first steps into the questions, who is talking to you, who is sending this message, uh, and also, of course, the possibilities to, to check what is coming in and sometimes also to put a clear frontier. For example, if you get individually offensive posts or something, or this mobbing campaigns on, on social media, I think this is something even children should understand very early to, to protect themselves. And then it, it, it could grow and it should accompany, I think it should, should accompany school education. I, I think we should really think about the, the platforms. So there are steps in how far are they responsible for information and could they stop it this could be more rigid and more consequent i think so, so giving more responsibility to say facebook and twitter and and the different tiktok more responsibility for absolutely them. especially tiktok yeah. is a is a huge factor now in this information dissemination and yes I, I think they should be taken into account and responsibility for content on their platforms. It is a discussion which is not at, at its end, out of my perspective. This is for me uh, essential. Yeah, and also the question of debunking is not so effective. So if you are delivering the mm -hmm. facts after the mis disinformation was already spread, it is always coming too late. Uh, so when I discussed that bit with colleagues, I think my, our understanding was that we should be very accurate with the facts and I think there's a responsibility of professional media also to be near at, at the news. For example, the Russian attack in Ukraine is now not really covered by mutual correspondents and journalists. So you don't have 
verified or professionally produced um, news materials and that makes it very difficult to get the picture. I think also when it comes to, to, to these effects on our societies, media should be very attentively observing and checking what is going on. Yeah, and there's one thing which is for me not really resolved, but how do we deal with social discussion, with different points of view in our societies, and where do we have the spaces to confront us with the idea of the other without just going into a free flow of aggression and dispute. Yeah? So um, where, is the, where is the spaces of political discourse and discussion which is quite important because our societies are under stress since years now. Mm -hmm. And it's that open public discourse on a reputable source or, or channel that could be missing in some ways. Yes, it could be. It could, there could be a technical uh, platform and it should be also a very analog um, procedure, I think. I mean, one of the things you, you mentioned there was the responsibility of journalists and also reputable news sources to ensure that thing, proper checks and balances were in place. Do you think as individuals, as communicators, aside from having, say, a code of ethics and following that, is there anything that we should be taking on board or proactively doing to debunk disinformation? As you said, sorry, as I'm saying this, I'm realising... Also, as you said, it's a bit hard to do it after the fact, which, as we know, the corona situation was very, very evident and some podcasters, some broadcasters actively made the choice not to give air and airtime to people who didn't have the scientific facts rather than to have an open discourse to actually shut down. Yeah, I think Corona is a good example, Monique, because um, yeah. Corona was an issue which was really offensive and very near to, to all individuals and mm -hmm. we knew in the beginning not too much. What I didn't understand at that point was that media, professional media were very engaged in delivering and reporting opinions, be it from scientists or politicians, and I missed factual information. I am perhaps a little bit radical because it is not all of the media and so on, yeah, but, but nevertheless, I think there was, a, in this context of unstable information, of a very polarized discussion, I think The first duty of professional media is to deliver facts and to deepen facts and to put critical questions, but to put the contexts together. And if you just leave it up to interpretation and talks, talk show yeah. debates, you are just enhancing uh, the emotions and, and interpretations well. around <laughs> the issue, but you are not not um, not discussing or delivering the facts. Absolutely, and I think there's also a tendency because of you know a lot of outlets need to make a dollar so to speak to tend towards clickbait and looking at readership numbers rather than going back to their their core purpose which is to share key information this is an important point i think then they are using the outrage effect yeah they are using the outrage yeah. uh, trigger what i said at the beginning of our conversation For me, is one uh, thing we should perhaps really avoid. Um, yes, it, it makes you, it, it is clickbaiting, yes, 
nevertheless, uh, perhaps it is not the right way to deal with those um, issues. You, you know, in Germany, we have a very, very um, rich media landscape with uh, common media, with small local media, with local newspapers, with uh, the federal broadcasting system. So we have, and it's paid by fees of people um, using it. And I, I think we could really expect from those media to do a very neutral and complete fact-dedicated uh, job. And there are a lot of checks and balances in the system. And I wouldn't say that it is not at all working, but um, especially in these very sensitive times, I think it needs the full picture. And that means telling the facts in the very beginning and trying your best to get them before you must react on disinformation by debunking what is not so efficient. Mm -hmm. And when we look to the future, one of the things that really struck me was was your comment right at the start that we're being very reactive at the moment and where you're sitting and if we look at the future what do you think we should be focusing on obviously deep fakes are only going to get better it's going to get more complex what do you think we should be planning for mm, it is getting more complex that's uh, but, but there, there are also tools to uh, better verify so the counter tools and check tools will grow also and I, I really, I think, I expect myself that in, in perhaps 10 years, I couldn't use information without rechecking many aspects of it. Yeah. So this um, simple use of push-up news coming on your mobile, yeah, I, I think it, it will have, uh, I will have difficulties to have trust in, in that and I will enhance my own checking um, technology uh, when I consume information. I think, but it's a. This is depending from generation. But uh, one mm -hmm. of my reactions is very clearly that I compose digitally on my mobile devices an amount of trustable sources, which I consume and let's say consult when it comes to issues where I don't have a clear picture. But I think the generation which is younger, they wouldn't. I have a. Let's say I have a. I still have a trust in the reputation of certain media brands and their professional ambition. When I speak with my children, I see a mixture of media consumption and I'm not sure if they would practice it like me. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to your point about education really right at the start, do you have any thoughts about the disinformation, sort of what directions can go in I mean just obviously more of it more believable content what kind of warfare what's the the next generation of warfare after this mm. it's, yeah it's not not so easy to answer it's a certain conjuncture of issues so they are just mm -hmm. using for now they are just using the next upcoming emotional issue which is there in current affairs it was corona or it, it will have been elections, for example. It has been the um, migration situation, for example. So all these are potential disinformation initials. One could say they could use any emotional issue which is, which is easy to use to separate or polarize societies. 
And this could be anything, but a pandemic situation as we had it was a very, very good example because it was a fearful situation for many of us. Any fearful situation, like now the war, like the, the corona epidemic, all this could be used. So the next pandemic could be used or the next elections. I'm not the one to put questions, but I asked myself, how, how was the impact in Australia? <laughs> yes, Australia has its own, own issues, believe me, as, as do I think many other countries. Uta, I have so much enjoyed our conversation. Any other thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, I think it's very important that we don't underestimate the international dimension of the disinformation campaign where the target groups are differentiated. And yes, mm -hmm. they are speaking different languages. But nevertheless, there are also links to one another. I just, uh, we here speak about Russian disinformation in many parts of our conversation. This is aimed to target groups in all Western countries, or on, in all democratic countries, I would say. This is the second point. The possibility to say freely my opinion and to have a an access to true information and facts. This is really, this is a human right. We should really be very attentive with and um, really protect it. And we just had the day of press freedom a few days ago. And when you see the trends, uh, I really see, okay, if, if the room for maneuver for professional media and journalists is shrinking, and perhaps the place for civil society is shrinking, and this information is growing, This will really spoil our societies and could lead to confrontations and warfares in, in many senses. And uh, I, I think it needs really a, a civil, a common civil approach to, to deal with these very complex uh, trends. That's uh, the, the very complex answer for your short, on your short question, but it is like that. I agree with you that, that it is scary looking into what the future could be and the answer is complex but it's one that I think we do need to address plan for and see if there is a collective solution that's possible because as you said it it tears at the fabric of our society that's true yeah <laughs> so Ute is the author of fake stat fact take a look at her book it's in German at the moment. Are you planning on making that available in English? Mm, my, the, the problem is that there we have a clear, um, let's say, dominance of English uh, book market on, on Germany <laughs> and the translations in the other directions are not so often. So, no, no, mm -hmm. but, but, but honestly, it is a book telling things about German opinion manipulation and I think it is very Germany uh, dedicated. So it is, it is better to discuss aspects of the book in um, formats like this, uh, Monique, which I really appreciate. And I think this is the better way than to, to read the 400 pages on, on the German uh, market. There's, there's certainly a IABC Catalyst article 
coming out shortly that you've written as well that I'd encourage our listeners to read and perhaps it's inspiration for you to to share your global views in a new book in an English version that we can all sit tight and be excited to to read <laughs> it's a very good idea <laughs> I, I have to think about that that's a good, good proposal, proposal i would i would love to be one of the first people to read it so thank you once again for your time and i encourage our listeners to connect with you on and me on linkedin share your thoughts would love to continue the discussion Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Monique. And uh, yeah, stay in contact via LinkedIn or my website. It's also a possible way to contact if, if there is any interest. And your website address? Yeah, I I have it. It's um, my, it's my name. It's uteschefer.com. So you will easily find it. And I'll pop that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much.